I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Jurassic Park, 1993 film directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Michael Crichton and David Kep, based on the book by Michael Crichton. I'm here with the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. What isn't there to say about Jurassic Park? It's even weird hearing you, like explain what Jurassic Park is. Be like, it's a 1993 film. Like, ah, is that what it is? <laughs> right. You might have heard of it. This little movie. Yeah. Spielberg, this one guy directed it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it's like one of the greatest movies of all time, of course. Mm-hmm. And also holds a special place in my heart and I'm sure everyone's hearts that's here uh, just because it's that childhood movie. I think it's perhaps the most frequently cited film as far as why did you want to go into making movies? Well, I saw mm-hmm. Jurassic Park when I was a kid. Uh, it's like that in Star Wars, I feel like are the most common answers. So it's just this magical thing from our past, but also a really great movie that does so many things so excellently. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's I've mentioned it in the podcast probably too many times at this point, Jurassic Park, because it is the movie that changed my childhood brain from being interested in other things, mainly like, marine biology and dinosaurs into like screw digging up fossils of dinosaurs i want to make real dinosaurs (laughs) like you can make real dinosaurs and you can put them on a movie screen and it's amazing and i think uh i wouldn't be here today honestly if not for jurassic park potentially because it really it was like this awakening in my six seven year old brain of oh my god movies are more than disney films or just whatever I'd been exposed to up to that point, it's like, oh, they can transport me in this almost like spiritual way into a completely different experience. I, I still have like shivers of like seeing it in theaters and the sound and the immersion and like the like I was with the characters in their awe and wonder mm-hmm. at everything. And I just had never had any experience like that ever of anything you know so it really was like a transformative childhood experience for me it would be pretty impossible to overstate the influence that this movie had especially on people of our generation like it is crazy thinking what you were talking about alex with the your obsession with dinosaurs and everything dinosaurs have always been something that kids are super into right they capture our imaginations they're this like amazing animal kids love animals anyway but then the the coolest animals that ever live that that don't exist anymore so they have this mystique to them they seem magical but they were real right it's almost like that dragon or unicorn thing but they actually existed and they were cool as hell. And so to see them brought to life in exactly the way that you're talking about, Alex, was just so unreal. But then it also relaunched this like dinomania in our generation where (laughs) I remember everything in the mid 90s was dinosaurs. It was all dinosaurs. Everybody was like, how could we get a piece of the dinosaur craze that's happening that was touched off by this fantastic, groundbreaking, like landmark movie in cinematic history? And we can get into all of that. But it's just, I, I, it's exactly what you were, for me, Michael, it's exactly what you were saying. It's the movie that made me want to make movies as it is for so many of us. And so, yeah, every frame of it is burned into my brain. Absolutely. That's the funny thing for me is like, I honestly can't even remember the first time I saw it just because, you know, we're young, obviously, but like, I'm like, did I even see it in the theater? I don't know. I know I didn't. Yeah. But then it occurs to me how many times I've seen it 
in my life. I went to uh, the Hollywood Bowl last year and we got to see it with the LA Philharmonic doing the score, which was awesome. Oh um, God, that's so cool. Yeah. And just, and just seeing it with like, I, I brought jello for everyone, by the way. Um, but just <laughs> seeing it with an audience and, uh, and just that like, you know, it just sort of brought back this childlike wonder. And I think every once in a while, there's a movie that you watch so much when you were a kid or even when you were a teenager in college, whatever it is. And then you sort of, you watched it so much that you then suddenly realized like, I haven't watched that movie for five years or 10 years or something because you sort of one day hit like a, like just a, you just don't think about it for a little while. And it's always obviously in your heart, but you just haven't actually sat down and watched it. And it was amazing watching Jurassic Park there at the Hollywood Bowl and I was just like I remember every line I remember every delivery and I'm like so mm -hmm. excited by everything I was like getting emotional just watching it and I was like wow I forgot how much not that I ever stopped loving the movie I just forgot how exciting the movie was and that it actually was able to bring back that sort of sense of you know like you said with uh, something like Force Awakens Michael just being able to just feel like a kid again when you watch it see it's interesting because I think it's the movie it's the first movie I remember seeing in a theater like I have in my picture in my brain this picture of like me and my parents like driving to the theater I remember which theater it was I think it was like a dark and rainy night I remember going <laughs> past the like sign that said Jurassic Park and mm, the being poster. so excited yeah and like playing the trailer in my head uh and so for me, it, that's it marks the first like crazy cinematic mind-blowing experience and I remember seeing it five times in theaters as a child because it was just that much fun and I, I was trying to look up just now how long it was in theaters because i feel like yeah it was in theaters for a long like i think i aged several ages <laughs> and was still seeing the movie in theaters this right. is how it feels i don't know if that was true or not well i know for me i mentioned earlier to brian i was like i definitely know i didn't see it in theaters because i wasn't allowed to because in 1993 when this movie came out i was only seven years old and it's, of course, a PG-13 movie, but my parents decided it would be too scary for me. And so they wouldn't take me to see it. And But my sister, who was two years older than me, got to go see it. And so she came back and she told every frame of it to me, basically, and like explained the whole plot and like oh, told me about all the characters and remembered as much of the dialogue as she could and told me about all the dialogue. And so... I started, yeah, drawing pictures of dinosaurs and I had like dinosaur nightmares before I'd even seen the movie. And then, of course, it was <laughs> when I was nine, I was allowed to watch it. So I didn't watch this until 1995. But it was the first PG-13 movie I was allowed to see because I was begging to see it. And mm. it, yeah. There's no way for this movie to disappoint, even with all of that hype. My parents were definitely like very 90s parents and like, you know, concerned about making sure they don't expose their kids to really intense content too young or whatever. But this was definitely the first movie they made an exception for because mm -hmm. I was like, it's a dinosaur movie, like <laughs> dinosaur. I need to see the dinosaur movie. And they saw it first by themselves. And they were like, I don't know. There's some kind of gory parts some kind of scary parts. And like, I don't care. Like, I will see this movie. So I'm pretty sure I like wore them down. And they, they ended up taking both me and my like four year old brother to go see it. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> yeah, like, uh -oh. he was like four or five, but he was like into it. He was like, "This is awesome." I think my dad had him like hide behind the seat during like a couple of the gory parts. But besides that, like we were so down. It wasn't too scary. It was just amazing. Right. Uh, that's kind of a testament to the movie. I think is that it doesn't play like a kids' movie. You know, it's a movie that right. appeals to kids because it's dinosaurs. You know, and you have a couple younger characters in there, but it's not like 
it, it doesn't feel, there's not like porgs you know screaming and like flying through windshields and stuff like it's just <laughs> it's just like a movie that feels like it is made I mean, it feels like it's made for anybody it feels like it is made for an adult audience but a movie that kids can be excited about and and go on the ride for and i think that that's a problem sometimes with movies that try to hit all quadrants as they try to do all these separate things separately and they don't all feel like they're the same movie and that's not the case with jurassic park at all yeah it's an intelligent film like that's Mm -hmm. the thing even though it's again you know as adults i'm not sure if we hadn't loved dinosaurs as children if we would still love dinosaurs maybe we would but it accesses like this very sophisticated intelligent conversation thematically which we can get into but at the same time it's an action movie like and so it, it's fun. It's a ride. It's basically a theme park ride. So it, it does that four quadrant thing really successfully where there are some laugh moments and there are some like scary moments, but mostly it's just really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's so tightly put together too. It doesn't drag, but it like the exposition is takes exactly as much time as it needs to. And the character work is all there. And then the action sequences themselves are really well constructed and, and really taut and exciting. And then there's like an appropriate, like build to the climax and an amazing finale. It just, it delivers all of those things you want from a huge blockbuster movie, a big high concept movie like this is, it just is, the pinnacle of what it's trying to be and and a lot of movies have tried to be since then right uh yeah including its sequels um but like (laughs) it it, i mean it really it's so interesting how it really takes its time it sort of builds and builds Mm -hmm. and builds and it sort of gives you all these teases it has like the horror movie opening like there's something bad you don't get to see what it is yet but then just like once things happen then they happen like it was like I was appreciating how much time it was taking to get where it was going. But then suddenly I was like, oh, we're here now. Like it, there's no turning back. Like once once they are, you know, everything's out of the cages and they're all and they're all stuck in the Jeep. It's like, that's it. And it was um, surprising to me how smoothly it went from like exposition world into like, boom, here we go. No turning back. Well, I think it's also a testament overall to the fact that when you're a kid, like you can like adult movies. Like yeah. I think you just kind of ignore the philosophical conversations that don't mean anything to you and you are there for the other parts. But like, it's frustrating to me when you do see the kind of almost like corporate boardroom approach to like the four quadrant movie mm-hmm. thing where it's like, well, you got to get the kids. So put in like a kid thing and put in this thing. When I was a kid, I wasn't necessarily looking for that. I was looking for an amazing thrill ride adventure. And that didn't have to like talk down to me to give me that. Right. We're also children of the like mid eighties, early nineties where like, you know, eighties kids movies are terrifying. You have like dark crystal, like something wicked this way comes and like all this kind of stuff. And like, E.T. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fair though. That's fair. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's scary. And so, so it's like, we are used to that. We, we were used to being kids and seeing movies that weren't like light and fluffy. And then now we're just making movies that are either light and fluffy or are trying to be like hard and like daring and also light and fluffy at the same time. Like it doesn't make sense. Well, I think the, one of the things that actually contributed to that culture that a lot of us grew up in is the rating system because the PG 13 rating system didn't exist until 1987. And so Either a movie was like an adult film, quote unquote, so it was an R-rated movie, 
or it was a PG movie. And so mm. what what that resulted in was the the boundary pushing within the PG rating that like you would have language in there sometimes and you would have sometimes like more adult like sexual content and you would sometimes have a little more violence within the PG rating. The first Indiana Jones movie is a PG movie. Mm. Like Raiders wow, is PG and it's like it was Temple of Doom was the first PG-13, is that right? Yeah, Temple of Doom was the very first PG-13 movie ever. They invented it for that film because of the gore that was in there, which it's makes so sense. Yeah. yeah, but I think so we were exposed. <laughs> so we as young kids were exposed to a lot of PG movies that were today would easily be PG-13, right? But that's just what our parents were taking us to see because they had no other guidance, which is what the MPA rating, APA rating system is. It's guidance, right? And it's so interesting thinking back on how much, like it almost felt like propaganda the rating systems were. Like I remember going through theaters and seeing big posters of like the guides of this is what G means and PG-13 and, right. and then R and then NC-17. <laughs> and I remember as a Ooh, child, being like what? Like, what could possibly be an NC-17 movie? <laughs> I just like, I don't even, I still don't think I've ever seen an NC-17 movie. Like, it's such a weird, such a weird thing. I it can recommend X, a few but, to you, Michael. <laughs> okay. But it is interesting, like, yeah, how, how we do, kind of like you were saying, like all of you have been saying, but with the Porg example uh, in particular, Brian, I feel like that's a thing where it's like, oh, we need a kid's thing, put in this dumb joke. I'm like, I like Porgs, but it's interesting that we've come to equate a kid's thing with like a dumb, stupid, like silly joke. Right. That's like even out of step with everything else where, yeah, like mm -hmm. Jurassic Park is like scary, but it's not like disturbing scary. Like it's fun to be scared. And I think it's fun to be scared as a kid and kids like dinosaurs and dinosaurs are terrifying, but like, they're also so cool. It's weird to think about like, why are dinosaurs so cool like in another podcast i was listening to called hello internet they were talking about like what is this fascination with dinosaurs and does it have anything to do with garbage trucks because <laughs> as a child <laughs> as a child i feel like the garbage truck coming was a kind of cool thing yeah, it is. like i would go and like look out the window and see this huge truck come and like eat the garbage basically and honestly, I still kind of like stop and marvel at it when it happens. And like, is that activating the same part of your brain as like a dinosaur, like this huge thing that comes? And I mean, clearly you're up? remembering Encino Man where he steps outside for the first time and, he, and the garbage truck comes and he thinks it's a dinosaur. Yes, that movie that I've seen. <laughs> I knew you had. I think it has to do with as you're, you know, as you're when you're young and you're learning about the world the more that you um, like you can activate your imagination about like what's possible. Right. Because so, you know, when we're young and, and, and even continuing on through elementary and into like high school and higher learning and things like that, very little of what we learn, we get to experience firsthand where we don't get to experience most of the world. Like most of us don't travel. We don't really see the world. A lot of the like physics stuff that's happening all around us constantly. We're experiencing it, but we don't understand it conceptually and that kind of thing. And so when you're able to see something like that's very complex mechanically, like a garbage truck or, or, you know, we see kids like really interested in other sort of like large machines and that kind of thing that is activating that, like we're getting to see something that's actually very complex and sort of beyond our own experience. 
but it's kind of being brought into a place where it's, you know, exciting our imagination about how large the world is and all this kind of stuff. And also there's just this baseline level where, again, animals, they're so different from us and they're so, but they like exist in the world around us all the time. And so like, that's why kids love to go to the zoo. And as adults, we should probably also really like, you know, like, I mean, we have like all these other considerations now about like animal welfare and all this stuff, but still animals are amazing in the world. The natural world around us is amazing. And so the more that we spend time in it, the more that like, again, it, it, it excites that curiosity within us about how the, how enormous the universe is. For me, I, I really identify with the childhood wonder about the natural world, because mm. like I mentioned, the things that I was most interested in originally before I realized movies could basically do the awesome version of them was marine biology because marine mm -hmm. biology always struck me as basically alien. You know, like these are like space aliens on planet Earth. Amazing. Ocean weird. animals for sure they are. Yeah. Just like mm. the most amazing, crazy, like your imagination couldn't even dream of this stuff. Yeah. And dinosaurs are kind of in the same category of like totally. too, too wild to be real. Like how how are there really dragons that actually existed you know, fantasy creatures, basically. Uh, so I yeah. think as a kid, I just always, I always was amazed that the world actually had produced things that were essentially fantasy creations. And I exactly. wanted to like, you know, get into them. You literally just took like all the words out of my mouth. I, I just like made a note <laughs> to talk about space, water and dragons, literally. Um, <laughs> because I was thinking, for one, I was like, there's what's interesting about dinosaurs is there's this unknowing no unknowability to them un, unbeknownstness ting, ting, <laughs> ting, ting. um but where it's like it's not something we can see yeah. again you know it's only something we can we can talk about and when you think about you know forget about being a kid when you think about just like what what still exists that is unknown it's like outer space and underwater and one mm -hmm. of those is like right below our feet we just can't get to it and the other is way out there and we can't get to it and the reason that made me think of dragons was because with game of thrones reading the first book what i found really compelling about it was that 95 percent of the plot of the first book is completely could could be taking place in new york present day with like the ceo and whatever like it's just mm -hmm. uh you know oh like there's some secrets and there's like a you know power struggle and etc and then there's like a couple chapters where there's like also there's ice zombies but no one really believes that so like don't worry about that right now but the thing that always struck me was that dragons were extinct in the first book of, J of game of thrones and i thought ooh, that mm. really appeals to me as a human being who has a basically like you were saying alex dragon kind of creature that was extinct and then of course as the game of thrones books go then they get more and more fantasy but i thought it was a really cool way to sort of pull pull you into a fantasy world by saying like there are these fantasy elements but they're either not around anymore or no one knows about them yet and that's basically what we experience with, with dinosaurs but i think the thing with this movie is that in order for all of this like wonder and excitement and curiosity to be harnessed and make this movie work, it has to be believable, right? The dinosaurs have to look dead on real. And so up until this point, 
in like cinematic history, there was no way to make dinosaurs look real. And that's why, you know, a lot of the other movies that we've referenced from the 80s, it's like they're not trying to create a natural creature. They are creating like a gremlin or a goblin or something that's like fantastic because that's all they have the technology to create. They can't make Mm. it look dead on real. The fact that the technology was able to like come together in this amazing, perfect storm. I watch these scenes in Jurassic Park now, and those are real dinosaurs as far as I'm concerned. They Mm -hmm. have not aged in the same way that even more recent movies like CGI has aged. It's just so good. It's just, it looks incredible even now. It's aged so well. And at the time, there had been nothing anywhere close to this like there had been like two cgi movies and we talked about um t2 already Mm -hmm. but there had been like a couple of those cgi movies and basically nothing else and then you have jurassic park and it just explodes the audience's imagination about what movies can do and filmmakers imagination about what movies can do right it it truly was like you said a perfect storm yes it happened just when the technology was just barely able to do the things that it needed to do in a convincing way and i feel like the cgi holds up better than the animatronics which is kind of funny too like when it cuts to the animatronic t-rex i'm like oh, okay that's where you're using the like animatronic right. guy but like show me the cool cgi person and there's been a million like videos and things like dissecting mm-hmm. like all of the reasons why uh the cg holds up so so well but it, it is it is cool that this first one also remains one of the best examples and like the amount of care that went into the animation of it and that it was this kind of hybrid yes. version of CGI where it was using the stop animation uh, animators because, the, you know, the first thought was, well, we'll do it the way we've always done it, which is with stop animation puppets and <laughs> it, it'll be the best stop animation puppets ever like they'll have motion blur and stuff but you you look at the test footage that's on you know all the behind the scenes footage um special features and things and it's like it, it it's nowhere near the has the impact of the final cgi thing i remember this also being part of why uh this this film ignited my passion for filmmaking because it's it's using movie magic like it was creating yes. a new kind of movie magic and it was such a well documented process of that that learning experience like you know the director and the ILM people there's footage of them watching the first test of a T-Rex like walking and all of them are just like like we had chills like we'd never seen anything like this before like we knew something crazy had just happened yeah and like that energy like just flows into the movie and creates this epic spectacle that is amazing so i don't know if you've ever heard of the movie southland tales but it somehow completely passed me by It's the 2006 film that was the second feature from Richard Kelly, who was the writer-director of Donnie Darko, and it's such a 2000s movie. It features Dwayne Johnson in one of his earlier film roles, along with Sarah Michelle Gellar, Sean William Scott, Janine Garofalo, Mandy Moore, Amy Poehler, Kevin Smith, and Justin Timberlake. The only reason I heard of it is because it's one of the films streaming this month on MUBI. Mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional hand-picked films from around the globe. And as Southland Tales shows, they curate films of all kinds, so there's always something fresh to find. 
For each film, they give a quick blurb that explains why that film has been chosen. Their take on Southland Tales reads, Richard Kelly's much-anticipated but fiercely lambasted follow-up to Donnie Darko has rapidly achieved modern cult status, overriding the critics baffled by the film's exuberant, Pynchon-esque satire of a near-future America. Fourteen years later, the prescience of Kelly's madcap vision is breathtaking. So if you want to check out Southland Tales or any of the other unique selections in their ever-rotating catalog, you can try Mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay. In doing so, you'll be helping to support this show and getting to watch a bonkers blast from the past. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. I challenge what you said, though, a minute ago, because I think that the the animatronics do hold up in their own way. Like, I would still rather see Laura Dern and Sam Neill interacting with, like, a Triceratops, you know, in that sequence where... It's, like, That's a good I, one. I, it's yeah. really good it, mm-hmm. because they had... Animatronics had developed to such an extent that it didn't look, especially in that case where it doesn't have to like walk or do anything, right? It's just kind of like lying there. But it's still that because the actors are interacting with something that's really there, you get those amazing performances and it does feel real and their wonder feels real. And like, I don't think I'd want to see a version of that scene where they're like, you know, just interacting with a CGI triceratops, which is what all the Jurassic World movies are. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I, th- I think the only the only thing that I identified with you, Michael, about the T-Rex is that you can just see the difference when it cuts between a sure. shot of CG. And yeah. that's the yeah. only like unfortunate thing is that there's kind of a rotationness to the animatronic T-Rex where it's like, I'm rotating right. towards you now. And, right. and, I, and th- <laughs> there's much more fluidity in the CG version. So besides that minor quip, uh, I think the animatronics throughout are great because there's also moments of I think Velociraptor animatronics, uh, the yeah. uh, the Dilophosaurus that spits in Nedry's face, so like cool. those all are great. So I think it's really just when there's like a like a hard cut from CG to animatronic mm-hmm. that sure. it didn't work. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I also think that having the animatronics in those, like even just the animatronic T Rex head, it increases that feeling of danger. Again, because the actors are really interacting with it. Absolutely. So in the in the scene with the T Rex attack, where it like goes through the roof, you know, through the skylight into the Jeep and the kids have their hands up and everything and they're screaming because there is something really there. It pulls that safety net out that like bouncy safety net, Alex, like out from under that. No bouncy. It's not bouncy. It's very crunchy and very, it feels very tense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like scared for the actors in that scene. Yeah. That shot looking down at the kids through the glass as the T-Rex is like chomping down on them uh-huh. is yes. like, it still like actually disturbs me. That's like maybe the one shot of the movie that's actually kind of disturbing because the kids are screaming in a way that is like unholy. Like they are actually that scared and it, it's so visceral and intense. that There's like, these teeth just like gnawing at them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You really can feel it. Well, I, I feel like, cause I think this movie also in some ways, maybe even unintentionally, kind of created a, a useful grammar of how to use visual effects and when to use visual effects versus yes. special effects. I think what you guys are highlighting is like 100% true. Having something for the actors to interact with creates a 
like a performance, especially early, you know, early days where people weren't used to pretending like there's nothing there. This blue ball is your best friend. Um, <laughs> I always focus on the T-Rex scene just because it's like the best scene ever made ever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Accurate. And so I think, you know, I can tell the difference, like you were saying, Alex, when it cuts between the animatronic and the visual effects. But I think it's really smart. Like The choices that they made of which shots are visual effects, which shots are special effects, I think is really smart and allows it to be scary and you believe that it's this big monster, but also tactile and visceral, like you were saying. And I feel like I, I can feel the teeth on the glass <laughs> as the kids are holding up. Right. Totally. Also, no music during that T-Rex intro. Yes. Like music plays mm-hmm. such a big part in this movie. Like when you first get that shot, not just of the brontosaurus, but of all of Jurassic Park, it's like, yes. nah, 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 nah. but then like when the T-Rex comes out and you're supposed to be terrified, the music is like, nope, I'm going to let the movie and like the sound design and the visual design mm-hmm. speak for itself. And the actors the sound really design. Cool. My yeah. God. Like, ah! Oh my God. <laughs> well, that's, that's the scene that I remember as a kid, I had like physical sensations in the theater I felt cold. I felt like I was in mm. a cold, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. rainy car. I, 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 I never had been transported almost like where my brain was like giving me body sensations as if I were the kids in the car. And I think a lot of that is the sound because the sound is so accurate. The way the rain is hitting the roof of the car and the way it, when it cuts mm-hmm. outside, it sounds differently. It, it was like, very immersive. Yeah. And again, the sound design is what helps us buy the the size and the weight and like it goes back to like what we're saying about it feeling like crunchy and real it's the sound design where every single like and and not just the the famous stuff about like the ripples in the glass of water but every single move that the t-rex makes feels like it's thousands of pounds of creature that's moving and getting yeah what you're saying struck by rain and like i remember the sound of those um the wires that the t-rex snaps when it goes through yes. the fence and it's like mm-hmm. that classic yeah. I'm, I'm like yeah trying to imitate it's like ching, ching. i don't even know what it is but <laughs> yeah <laughs> although let's keep trying for a few minutes till we get it right <laughs> But you guys know exactly the sound I'm talking about because it's yes. burned into your memory the same way that it is into mine. What a testament to the sound design here. It's just, uh, and then of course, having this, the way that the sound works so well with the score, which is amazing. So this, this movie did win two Oscars. It actually won three, but two of them were sound editing, sound mixing, and then mm-hmm. it also won for visual effects, which it like sound deserves all three all of, of those yeah yes yeah gary rydstrom i was just trying to remember because I, I knew it in the back of my head but gary rydstrom was the sound designer and i feel like there's maybe no better like like it's sound moment in a movie where you know ian malcolm runs out or maybe it's grant i forget the first time you see you hear the t-rex scream where it's just like he yeah. waves it and then there's just like this Close up the of the T Rex being like, "What you want to like? You want to come at me?" And it has this roar <laughs> that is just—it's what a dinosaur sounds like. But it didn't exist before that movie, All right. and it's such an important like moment. I, I feel like in, in filmmaking history of like we yes. created the sound of a dinosaur, and forever this is what people now think dinosaurs sounded like, even though maybe they sounded like birds chirping. Well, even even whatever. before that that moment you're talking about, Michael, is the first full body reveal of the T-Rex as it mm-hmm. steps out. Mm-hmm. And that I think that shot is like such a historic yeah. shot because it's the first like full body CG yeah. T-Rex shot. 
and it ends with the first roar like roar. Yeah, yeah it's just so um, like what a shot <laughs> yeah. yeah that's just like flexing that's like steven spielberg just flexing like here you right. go guys i i did it and if you yeah. haven't watched in the like making of documentary which if you haven't what are you even doing but like <laughs> but go rewatch the making of documentary because they talk about how they like mixing animal sounds to create the different like dinosaur sounds and so like they talk about with the velociraptors with the dolphin scream it's like a dolphin and a walrus and like an alligator mm. it's crazy mm-hmm. but it, it gives you that that high-pitched shriek that the velociraptors make and, and everything so you know science now knows more about what dinosaurs sounded like but at the time it was like basically very little was known about what they sounded like and so yeah this uh, the commitment to creating this very unique but still very like animal based like reptilian and they thought about dolphins too because they're so intelligent and they're like oh the raptors are so smart let's mm. get this like intelligent sounding mm-hmm. animal and it, it, it affects you on this like primal level i wonder if it's almost been too effective because now you know we know so much more about like what dinosaurs were really like and the similarities but no one wants to see like reality we want to see <laughs> jurassic park dinosaurs right. so i wonder if that's a thing that archaeologists struggle we with. didn't right. want reality we wanted more teeth <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's always the interesting thing is like obviously in dinosaur with dinosaurs we're talking about something real but even something like uh, the idea of a zombie, which existed before 1968, but then George Romero gave us mm-hmm. what we still to this day think of as a zombie. And like, that's what Jurassic Park did with dinosaurs. Obviously, that's using something real and uh, and researched. But like you were saying, Michael, it's just like, yeah, but now that is there, there's one movie that we use to say this is what a dinosaur is. So that's what we're going to use from now on, you know, and, we, and you see, I can't think of other great examples, but you see that where one movie will sort of so perfectly g- give us an idea of something that that's all we want to go with from then on. We don't want to actually know how things really work. Exactly. We just want to, like, I don't want feathers all over my dinosaurs. Right. right. <laughs> I feel like Jaws is another yeah. kind of example mm-hmm. of like, oh, this is what we think of sharks as, but there's like lots of sharks and sharks aren't that scary. Yeah. It becomes we'll in a way this like cultural ip right where there's it's it's a concept that exists across a lot of different media and in history and in science and whatever but because there was this milestone or yeah this touchstone almost that redefined what this piece of ip was that is now all we like have right and so you know, we've had a lot of different, it, it almost reminds me a little bit, even though there have been different takes on it, like Arrival that we talked about, but it reminds me a little of like what we think aliens look like, right? There's like sort of like mm-hmm. the classic the Roswell, yeah, Roswell right. kind of looking thing where it's just like, that's, you know, an alien that you could, it's a piece of iconography almost at that point. But our mm-hmm. image of dinosaurs comes straight out of Jurassic Park or has since this movie came out because it just so redefined our imagination about what this thing was. Yeah, I I feel like I also want to talk about like structurally the T-Rex scene, I think is so awesome because it's the midpoint of the movie mm-hmm. and yes. it's doing that that thing that Your I midpoint feel like all thing great... that you love. I, I know, I, I love midpoint. Michael, I did the time check and I thought of you. I was like, I was like, this is the midpoint, isn't it? And I checked, I was like, yep. <laughs> well, and I, I feel like it's it's borrowing from a lot of the great monster movies that I like anyway. The midpoint is where the monster comes right like that's when it happens and you know rewatching jaws recently like that's kind of where you first really see 
the shark and alien like the midpoint is Mm -hmm. where the alien bursts out of the dude's chest and i think it's such a smart construction to make us really be invested and have the fear necessary i I think to like sustain for the rest of the movie is spend that first hour getting us invested in the characters teasing the monster like let us show the power that's being dealt with here uh and just get everything ripe for then the moment, like you were saying, Alex, where the T-Rex comes out and roars and now we know it's on. Mm-hmm. And it, that's just such a great story construction. Well, I think, too, the interesting thing about Jurassic Park beyond a, like a simple monster movie is that there actually is something is similar. Alien is sort of like a good reference for this because there are different kinds of dinosaurs right so we don't have the same expectations of a velociraptor that we do of a t-rex or whatever so we it it saves those reveals for later and later and later in the movie so we see the you know the brachiosaurus quite early on in the movie or like it's sort of at the first act end of the first act when they get to the island and we see the brachiosaurus of course we have a hint of the velociraptor in sort of the prologue um and i love that that's like the first dinosaur we kind of quote unquote see but it's like the last that we actually like meet in mm-hmm. like the movie um it's really they're really held back writing. for a long time they're held back so because they're so scary which is smart well they're like like the real like bad guys yeah like, they are kind of by the end like they're the ultimate antagonist i was always eventually. team velociraptor I was. Oh. Like, I mean, I liked them too. Yeah. You wanted I was them like, to. I want to be a velociraptor. Kill the children? You mean? They're just so. They're just so <laughs> freaking cool. Like, I just like that was like the top most amazing thing was velociraptors for me. Yeah, but I, it it goes back to this idea of like the movie actually doesn't conceal the dinosaurs from us; it conceals the danger from us. Mm. Right. So like we see the brachiosaurus, we see the triceratops. They're this. They're accessing that like wonder peace and we know they're dangerous but like the danger is withheld and withheld and withheld until that midpoint when the when the t-rex gets out and so i mean thematically the movie is juggling both of those things right the wonder versus the danger of this kind of technology and this kind of progress and so it plays on the wonder and all of that stuff in a really smart way where we're as excited as grant and sattler are and, and everybody is but we know that the turn is coming. It helps to create that tone of this is still going to get bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg, like he's great at the sense of wonder. Like he just, Mm -hmm. he'll sort of like, we're going to show you this Island and we're going to show you this big sweeping shot and it's going to be music. And then when we see something like when we see the dinosaurs, you're going to see everyone else's reaction before the audience actually gets to see them. And just Mm -hmm. everything feels, uh, you know, just feels very big and very like, yeah, it's the, you know, it is this, this ride, literally theme park ride, because that's what Jurassic Park actually is. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just like such an interesting, you know, and you can overdo it, obviously, but I think he handles it really well in this movie, especially where you just feel like excited to see, whatever new thing you're being shown. Um, He's not embarrassed about using the spectacle of cinema. I feel like a lot of directors that want to be taken seriously and make serious movies, they get embarrassed about like the big sweeping shot or, or whatever. And they don't want to do like do a thing. Cause it looks cool. Spielberg right. is not embarrassed about that. He's like, I'm going to shoot the coolest thing you've ever seen. And it's going to be, you know, <laughs> 50 feet high and on your screen or whatever. He is using the cinematic language in a very American way 
to tap into the audience, do this high concept thing, get into everybody's brains, just awe us, which is sort of, you know, nowadays, like he's veered away from that style of Mm. filmmaking and he is making more serious sort of like dramas and like little human drama things. But when you look at something like E.T. or Close Encounters or Jaws, it's just so unashamedly big. And right. I love that. I love that kind of filmmaking. The frustrating thing about Spielberg is he he is also making those big sweeping movies. They're just Indy 4 and Ready Player One. It's almost like Spielberg yeah. like sp- split his personality and he just went and made like serious movies and movies that were like very bouncy and very just like over the top kind of thing. And I'm just like, yeah, can't you just make one that's that's both things again? Because that'd be great. Well, because I was going to say the miracle of Jurassic Park is and a lot of Spielberg movies is how it is both things it's like the characters Mm -hmm. in this movie are as good as any like ensemble cast of characters i've ever seen like absolutely truly like three-dimensional well-drawn characters a perfect marriage of the actors and the characters they're playing i just like it's that almost feels like more of a miracle to me than anything else in this movie is just how wonderful the cast is and how perfect the like character web is yes i do feel like that's one of the best like directory decisions he could have made is to cast these people that weren't movie stars. Like there aren't like name people in this film. And so you can watch them and they just feel real and feel authentic. Obviously, obviously now they're all name people that that was like a, a pretty bold choice. I feel like if you're, you're creating this very expensive movie to, to know that the dinosaurs and the spectacle is going to get people into it. And, casting people that will just imbue those dinosaurs with with the feeling that you need because i think that's the other thing like we were talking about with having the actors interact with actual things on set i feel like we're afraid of the dinosaurs because of how afraid yes the actors are like you Mm -hmm. were saying alex the children screaming is so intense like the children are terrified for their lives and so we are terrified for their lives and so i think the casting is also it's a thing that maybe is eclipsed by all the spectacle around it but i think is so so key to having this film feel believable and real from start to finish I just did a quick search of who the highest growing stars of 1992 were, which would be the year before Jurassic Park when they might have been like, you know, starting to think of casting and stuff. And when uh, just picture Kevin Costner and Julia Roberts as uh, as Grant and Sadler. (laughs) 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 Praise Jesus, we dodged that bullet. But these these characters are so iconic now because of the performances of these particular actors. Definitely. Like the way there's. Uh, I could like, <laughs> sorry, I have no idea where I want to start with the cast. Just literally gushing I, right now. <laughs> I can't handle it. But I, Sam Neill is so amazing because he's like so weathered, and it goes back to what you're talking about about like, um, that speech he makes at the beginning about the Velociraptors, where we know how much he loves these animals, but he also has this real respect for them. Where there's nothing scarier that when than when he goes you bred raptors and that's when Mm -hmm. like cuts from there to when we first hear the raptor scream across the like top of the raptor paddock Mm -hmm. and and when they realize that the raptors have gotten out right so you have Muldoon who is like no the raptors are out again you have the these actors and their expertise which is believable 
because of the actors that were cast here, right? You believe absolutely in Sattler and Grant and Malcolm, and you believe in all of them completely. And so their reaction to the dinosaurs is just what you feel. You just trust it completely. You're like, they are having the appropriate reaction. And so if they're terrified, I'm terrified. Like it it works really well because again, so much of them, the, they they save reveals of the dinosaurs. They have them spaced out throughout. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have those performances that are like, selling it to you that hard and the kids too absolutely yeah the kids are amazing Mazzello and ariana richards who are fantastic in this another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Talking about characters, Trisha, you wrote the Lessons from the Screenplay video on Jurassic Park. And I did. would love to hear your take. You know, it was all about the challenging the characters by having them have to sort of face this theme. And I would love to hear you uh, talk about that a little. Well, so this was the Jurassic Park video that I wrote for the channel is the first one that I wrote. Michael and I had recently reconnected and we had been chatting movies. And so he was like, do you want to write something? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, pitch me something. And so I, of course, picked my all time favorite movie, which is this one. I think that this movie feels thematically complex, which is why you perhaps when you think of it, don't immediately think of like a heavy-handed thematic movie, right? Where if you think about a movie that feels like preachy or like theme is the first thing that jumps into your mind, it's probably not Jurassic Park. But because the theme is complex, right, which as I mentioned before has to do with this, the the two-sided coin of technology and progress. Like, isn't it amazing what we can do? Of course it is. It's amazing and wonderful and fantastic. Isn't it also incredibly dangerous? Yes, it's also that. So this movie is embodying those two things. And the two central characters, if you can think about like Grant and Hammond, essentially, as those two central characters represent two different sides of that. And the fact that they um, interact with each other and clash over that in their dialogue is interesting, right? So some of those early scenes where they're, I mean the fantastic scene where they're in the boardroom and there's like all of those projectors around them. And they're all just sort of like the debating, the like philosophical yeah. thing that's happening at Which Jurassic Park. Such a weird space to have designed, <laughs> but like it works for that. But even as a kid, I was like, where are they? What kind of a room is this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's in the first every Spielberg scene. movie, the smokiest one ever. <laughs> right. Right. That's the first scene where you really start to feel like this movie is about these different takes mm-hmm. on this idea. And I think it's cool because not only does it make for for conflict, but it also makes us think about what what our argument would be in this situation. Like, you know, exactly. like watching a zombie movie. It's like, what would I do if this happened? You know, it makes you go like, how would I feel if I were sitting in this room? Whose side would I be on? And you just have so many characters in opposition with each other. Even a scene like Dodson and Nedry, you know, you have Dodson yeah. show up and he's so <laughs> like stealthy. And then Nedry's just there being all Newman. And he's like, Dodson, we got Dodson. And just like a simple scene like that shows so much conflict between two just very different characters ideologically. 
Yeah. But the amazing thing I think about Jurassic Park is that it doesn't just do that with dialogue and with different characters. It actually puts them in situations Mm -hmm. that attack their beliefs. So by putting Grant into this situation where he has to take care of children and there's nothing he can do about it, that's just his job now. And by seeing like Hammond watching everything fall apart around him that he's built because he was so obsessed and like rushing headlong into this progress those situations are attacking the theme like uh, the thematic beliefs or like the the characters takes on the themes essentially it creates this rich argument in a way that i don't know if a lot of action movies are really capable of creating it's fascinating it's 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 really good I, i don't i can't think of many blockbusters that have a philosophical debate at their core that is actually mm-hmm. like richly explored through through the characters through the story through all mm-hmm. of it yeah well and that it feels truly like it's it's kind of in the subtextual realm because when you're for me anyway when i'm watching jurassic park i'm not consciously thinking about all of that it's just you know emotional triggers that i'm having Mm -hmm. throughout and i feel like that's i feel like it's in some ways more effective because you don't realize you've Mm. just had this argument with yourself because you've just been watching dinosaurs eat each other but you like haven't you've been going on this these kind of multiple character arcs and seeing characters learn and i think it's just that every step it feels so organic like the evolution of each character and like you're saying you know Grant has to take care of kids, but it kind of just happens. It never feels right. like there's never a moment where you're just like, okay, well, here's Grant. He's got to take care of these kids now. He's got to learn a lesson. Right. Like it all just happens and flows so smoothly. It's like, it's the, the perfect thing that you'd want to create for a movie. And I want to shout out to Michael Crichton and David Kep and the adaptation work that went into this because I think the thing that makes Jurassic Park the movie work really well is especially the interpretation of Hammond because Hammond in the book is not very sympathetic, right? He's he's this billionaire, tycoon, sort of money-grubbing suit kind of a guy. But that's like an oversimplification. Transferring that kind of like more shark-like person who's out to make a profit on dinosaurs into the Richard Attenborough character here, this version of Hammond is so much more sympathetic. Like it would be so easy to dismiss and the sequels have. Right, (laughs) right. That kind of a a, um, materialistic approach to the creation of dinosaurs. But because in the movie, and part of that is this entire meta thing that's happening with Jurassic Park, which I could, and Universal Studios, which I've written about many many words about um but it it actually makes the movie an interesting thematic conversation which it wouldn't be if Hammond were more sort of a one-dimensional profiteer rather than this like person who himself is amazed by dinosaurs and he's but you know he's benevolent and um kindly right and so and 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 one of the most telling choices in in when you look at the adaptation is Hammond doesn't live through the book he dies he gets eaten by dinosaurs he makes it through the movie just fine and again that enables him to have a complete arc he comes to realize he was charging forward not necessarily because he wanted a profit in the movie but because he was obsessed with this like what can technology do I just want to shout out John Williams, not that we need yes. to shout him out, but I think part of what works 
with the John Hammond character in this movie is a lot of the musical cues associated with him. You know, like when he mm-hmm. is kind of in these moments of doubt or like reverie or when he's like about to get on the helicopter to leave for the very last time at the end, there's the music really pulls at your heartstrings and it, 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 it makes like, I feel kind of sad and wistful and nostalgic and yeah. melancholy with him. And, and the music really takes you on this journey of like, you also kind of want want the park to have worked out and you like you were there for the wonder and the music was making you feel that wonder and so there's a real like sadness at the end of the film when they're leaving the island it's not just like a straight up like oh that was like really scary like oh phew they escaped there's like a there's a loss and you you feel it and it's that's why it's a more powerful movie than just like we got away from the monsters movie there's like so much more going on and there's so much more emotional investment you have I feel like John Williams is the epitome of cheat codes. Yes. Like, <laughs> right. like it's just completely unfair. To Universal's credit, I think what they were trying to do was there's this meta aspect to these whole movies where you're using new computer technology to create dinosaurs. And if you're Universal Studios, you're specifically doing that for a profit. So you don't, you as a studio don't want to associate associate yourself too closely with like a villain in the movie, right? Like you want to associate yourself with Hammond. So Hammond kind of has to be a good guy, right? So you want to continue to have dinosaurs because the, the studio's position is dinosaurs are cool and should exist because wonderment. And so you kind of have to soften like the book is basically a cautionary tale. But if you're making this as a movie, you have to soften that because otherwise then you have something that's a little bit disdainful of its own audience where you're paying money to see dinosaurs, much like park goers would be paying money to see dinosaurs. And so there's this like, because, it, and, and we talked about this a little bit in the video, Michael, that's kind of baked into the premise, right? And so I think that the take on Hammond is a really wise one from a financial standpoint, but it also actually manages to make the conversation about technology more interesting and poignant. Now, do you feel like that theme is explored better in the original or in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom when the clone girl releases the dinosaurs <laughs> because they're alive like her? <laughs> I could literally talk about this for four hours and i i did i did write an article um for wisecrack uh in partnership with medium and and you can check it out but that's about the meta aspect of jurassic park because as a franchise of course this is better um situated to comment on like the movie industry because it's about creative power so it's like situated Mm -hmm. to comment on its own existence and and honestly you can knock the Jurassic sequels all you want to, and I'm with you. Colin Trevorrow, at least to his credit, seems somewhat aware that there's like a meta thing happening. And so, and I feel like Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom in as much, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom in as much as it sucks, kind of doubles down on the like meta aspect of the whole thing. I think in some ways it's like, it's like a weird sign of the times, you know, like, like there's in the early nineties, there's like this earnestness to like mm-hmm. the like the theme park wonder totally and now there's just like this cynical like right <laughs> like 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 dark like the kids are over it yeah like yeah and like jurassic world yeah. like oh we're gonna go see dinosaurs yeah just like a yeah. cynical dark corporate take on it all <laughs> yeah exactly and, and i think again it's a smart choice with jurassic park to have the park not be open right because once you start getting into like the consumer-ish part of it 
it really does start to cross into this like, well, what's being said about the consumers and consumer culture that gets a little too big and cuts a little close to home, whereas we just kind of want to pay our money and see our dinosaurs. And so it, it, it feels ickier the closer you get to that part of the thematic conversation, I think. Yeah, that is a really interesting point that having the park not be open yet allows for so much of that exploration to happen uncomplicated. Exactly. They're there as scientists. They're not there as consumers. So yeah. it kind of, yeah. I love that when Hammond is is like starting to try to give the tour, it's like not quite put together yet. You know, he's like, oh, I have lines <laughs> here. And he's like, there's going to be better music. And you know, like, yeah. Also love the, uh, the voice of Mr. DNA. Even a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dino DNA. And that was David Kep, actually, that, that, because there's so much exposition that has to happen. So that sequence... Not performing the voiceover. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that was the voice of Yogi Bear. The decision to just like, let's show a little video, right? That idea of let's get some of the exposition out of the way because Michael Crichton had done a draft on the screenplay and it was weighted down by like, well, how does it work? How do we have dinosaurs? And and there's no real elegant way to do like an exposition dump in that sense. And so this idea of like, well, let's do a little video that explains it for kids that you might have when the park is open was a really smart decision um because we just kind of speed through it at that point there's a movie that did a terrible version of that and it was the <laughs> stepford wives remake and Yikes. i've only seen it once so i may be totally off on this but if i remember correctly there is like a mr dna type video that like shows oh, yeah. how the wives brains are basically replaced and how they how they become like reprogrammed. But then later, Nicole Kidman steps into a room and there's like a shell Nicole Kidman in the room, which implies that like they don't replace them. They make it they have a new one and it didn't make any mm. friggin sense. So Jurassic Park does that better. It sounds like one of those things where it's like late in the game. Right. Like, ah, we need to explain this. Right. Let's sit down and explain it in a way that makes it more harder to understand. Right. A rival can get away with it. Yeah. It's a way that you know, that sort of, um, I think I forgot what you called it, Brian, in the minority report video, but it's like environmental storytelling, mm. right? Where you have like news broadcasts or, or other things just sort of in the environment that are sort of secretly conveying exposition right. to you. A lot of movies do that. I just think that because of this theme park construction of this, it's like a really smart, like just condense it into like a three minute video put it up on there and then we can get past all of that and start getting into the meatier conversations about like what's happening here philosophically and then of course get to the action i feel like that video is so effective that i'm still like confused about why we don't have dinosaurs yet <laughs> because i was like we i watched a video it's that very explains simple. how you do it like science what are you doing right now and, and just with all the exposition the the brilliance of spielberg is that there's always character development happening yeah, as it's going, you know, like you said, Brian, like Hammond is like trying to apologize for like the unfinishedness of the video. Meanwhile, like you know, Malcolm and Grant and Sattler are all are they're all having their comments decide to, to each other. So it's there's so much always going on with the characters. There's never long stretches of just info dumps with with no character work. Yeah, and it may be the most classic example of like come in late and get out early. They just like leave before the video is over, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> They're so excited to see the eggs and all of that stuff, which the the raptor eggs hatching is one of the most like amazing little sequences in it where we really get more of that uh philosophical you know that's your where your life finds a way thing is happening and like all the dinosaurs are female 
that's all exposition that's happening around the circle of a raptor being born. And so it's this, again, amazing, like disguising exposition while having a thematic conversation, while there's something visually incredible happening right in front of you. It's just such smart writing. There's also a pretty egregious continuity edit during that sequence oh, yeah. that always bothers the me. The robot arm. But it's still a very good sequence. Well, and we get to meet B.D. Wong, who, of course, has turned out to be Dr. Henry Wu, one of the staples of the Jurassic franchise. Who's been in more of the movies than anybody else at this point. <laughs> God, he keeps surviving. I just want to shout out one last continuity error that like, did we ever settle this? I'm pretty sure where the T-Rex comes out of the paddock is where the wire is broken. And then the car goes over the same place where the wire is broken. And it's a cliff now. It's a cliff. That's that's pretty crazy. (laughs) I feel like I saw something at some point that claimed to explain it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, We'll do some research and... But what a tribute to how exciting that scene is that when you watch it the first six times, you don't even notice it because you're just being dragged along by how exciting it is. Sorry, I just found a diagram, a very detailed (laughs) diagram that someone on the internet has made. where (laughs) So the the cars are on their track, right? And there's the T-Rex fence all along. And I think this diagram is positing that the T-Rex paddock has like a hard edge. Mm. And so... The T-Rex comes out, breaks the fence on both its paddock and the paddock next to it. And then the car goes over the paddock next to it, which for some reason is a cliff. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, anyway, I, I could buy the cliff. I'll put it in the show notes. People can check it out. I could buy the cliff as like, you know, you see like a moat in like a lion, you know, enclosure or whatever at the zoo. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a moat that keeps it in its thing. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's a really amazing yeah, sequence. I, as you said, Trisha, like, I don't think as a kid, even it bothered me for a long time. Like like the other things like Michael's pointing out these weird random continuity errors, my kid brain picked up on more than in that scene, because in that scene, you're just so hmm. engaged. You're not really like looking for those things. I think it was usually during like the philosophical discussions as a kid, I was like, just looking at other stuff because I was ignoring the adults. And that's where my brain was like, wait a minute, the robot arm was this way, not that way. I find it weird that you picked up on those at all. <laughs> As a kid. No, as a kid, that's like a big thing. Like when I watched movies as a kid, like Star Wars, all these, like I see this, I see them so many times that you notice these really strange continuity errors that mm-hmm. nobody would ever pick up on. I feel like one of the things where I was, I realized that Alex was like a true soulmate of mine that like we needed to be friends. He just done this huge favor for me was uh, I, I had always remembered from a child onward, this image of Ellie Sattler riding in the jeeps right in the beginning where they're they're riding to where they see the dinosaurs for the first time. And in the movie, they get in the jeeps and they're riding. And then when they pull to a stop, she's holding this plant leaf and she's talking about yep. like this plant leaf. And in my head, I was I always had this vision of like, but I've seen her pull that plant leaf. Like I've seen her mm. take it, but it's not a move. And so for like 20 years or whatever it was, I was like, where is this? And it was Alex who then ultimately showed me the trailer. Oh, wow. Where that shot exists in the trailer. And it was like, I felt like suddenly I wasn't a crazy person. (laughs) Which probably just reinforces the fact that I am a crazy person. But I had the exact same experience. Yeah, where she leans out of the Jeep and grabs the thing. And then she's... Right. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And and just Laura Dern, because I just have to for a few moments. Like, 
She's so good in this movie. Maybe one of the like most badass female characters in like a movie from this time and just so articulate. And I love the scene where she's confronting Hammond and she just like kind of knows how to cut to the situation where he can't accept the fact that like he was wrong. Right. It's just such a poignant scene. And, and everything about Laura Dern's performance, she's like as believable when she's like flipping all of the switches and, and turning oh the fences God, back sequence. on. So well, good. I love her commitment. You know, like she yes. is willing to kind of look ridiculous in the name totally. of, of being honest about like, Definitely. what do you like? How do you actually react when a velociraptor bursts out in front of you? Like your face does that and you, and your scream sounds like that. Like you're not going to do a movie version. The, the chain yeah. link thing behind <laughs> yeah. her and it's just like. And at the end of that suit where she's like limping away and barely closes the door and just breaks yeah. down sobbing. Yeah. Oh, so good. I'm a big David Lynch fan, and I so I've seen. Yeah. I think she's been in like four or five of his things, and she is always like so fearless in her performance. She is just willing to, as you were saying, Alex, just do whatever the performance calls for. She doesn't need to be like looking cool or looking pretty, whatever. She is just going for it 100 every single time. Yeah, she's able to like go into like animal mode, like she can yeah. tap mm-hmm. into that like reptilian brainstem and just like go there, which is so. Yeah, fearless and wonderful. I just love. But then she can that. also play like Marmee and Little Women or something, and like still, exactly. you know, it's like exactly. she doesn't have to do that mm-hmm. in order to be compelling. She's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah. she's like a really, I don't know, just really well written character here. Yes, right. Where she's essentially, you know, besides Ariana Richards, um, is kind of the only woman in this movie, and so she has to like hold down that like space, the sort of femaleness of all of it, and she's just doing it so well. And so intelligently where she's a part of this ensemble and yet she's uniquely strong, like in her own way and how, yeah, just, ah, she's so good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the temptation would be to, as I think we've seen with um, the character of Claire um, in the Jurassic world, the temptation is to like push her to be a little bit more caricatured. And I just think that this part is really well, like, grounded and well written as like a this is a human person yes. not a cartoon or a caricature right. of a person all the characters that's what's so yeah, remarkable is exactly. you kind of expect especially from i think a lot of modern day blockbusters these this cast of caricatures and mm. it's so remarkable to see like this big budget action movie have like almost indie movie characters it's just a really really cool combination and how they deliver the dialogue they're allowed yes. to like mm-hmm. mumble and throw lines away and they don't feel on the nose. They're not self-aware. Jeff Goldblum it up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jeff yeah, Goldblum I mean, it. He, I mean, he's Jeff a real Goldblum. life cartoon character. <laughs> he's, he's one of those people like Christopher Walken, like Jeff Goldblum has like turned into a caricature of himself. Yeah. In this weird, it's like it's like every time you see him talk mm. in an interview, it's always had, and then, well, then it's down. Ah, uh, and, mm, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, mm. it's just like, what are you doing? Why are you not a human being? Well, and remember how Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie? Uh huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. That's so crazy. Hold on to like, your butts. Speaking yeah. of people who have become caricatures of themselves, sure. But he's in this sort of minor part in this movie, and he doesn't draw unnecessary attention to himself again. Yeah. Like. It would be so easy because this is a big movie to push the characters too big. And the script doesn't do that. And and Spielberg lets the performances not be too big. 
I feel like even Dennis Nedry, who's probably the most like mm-hmm. big in that way, like yeah. the most like I'm a movie character, somehow is still like grounded enough. Like he's still nice, amazing by yeah. him. Yeah. And it's slip and it's fall and oh, <laughs> yeah. a little slapstick uh, there. Uh, uh. <laughs> exactly. One of the last things I want to talk about story construction wise is the ending is an ex machina ending. Like it's such a like blatant example of it. I wait. I remember Deus ex machina. S- yeah, the, not the, the movie. Not the movie. Ex machina. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I forgot that the Greek thing. That extra word. Yeah. yeah, the Greek. Yeah, it's just so that, but it's also so exactly the ending that everyone wants mm. that it's okay. And I think it's just such an interesting example of like this is blatantly what you're not supposed to do, and also this is. 100% the right choice for this movie is somehow the T-Rex has become kind of a hero, <laughs> yeah. even though it was also the monster. And so you want the T-Rex to eat the Velociraptor in the end. Right. You want to do the Godzilla thing. And so I, I just think it's a really interesting choice and a thing to think about. Trisha, you got a thought? Always about this movie. But there are a couple of logistical reasons why I think you needed to go that direction. Um, and one of them has to do with what I was talking about, the construction of Hammond, which you'll notice that in basically every subsequent Jurassic movie, you have a human villain, right? And so you have a, a very like usually one dimensional profiteer kind of a character, which you actually don't have here except for maybe Gennaro. But pretty much everybody else is a complex character who has their own view of what's going on, but there's not a quote-unquote villain beyond, like, the velociraptors, pretty much. Um, And so because Hammond no longer is occupying that villain space, logistically, you kind of just need to have another dinosaur step in to deal with this in the final climax and confrontation. There's, of course, also a thematic thing going on here about how humans don't have control of nature, and so there's it's foolhardy for us to assume that we do, right? That's kind of the other, that's the danger side of the argument of technology, um, which is what Malcolm is sort of espousing the whole time. Like we don't have control of this and we it's dangerous to mess with it. And so in order to have Hammond really pushed over then to the other side of his original viewpoint, which has to do with like, let's just do it because we can in order for him to like check himself, not just the like danger that's being posed to the people he loves, he needs to sort of see how beyond his control nature really is. And I think having that, the, the, the T-Rex step in and like this, you know, sort of survival of the fittest thing that happens right at the climax has that thematic purpose as well. Well, and it's good for the humans to not the humans don't win because of humans. The humans exactly. don't outsmart the raptors. They don't kill all the raptors in like a heroic way. Like they, they're screwed except for the T-Rex happens to show up. <laughs> like nature right. deals with itself in that situation. The humans have like are powerless basically. Right. And so it's that thing of like, you have these screenwriting rules, like don't have a deus ex machina unless your story is thematically about how things are beyond our control. So then maybe a deus ex machina is exactly what you need in order to say something thematic. It, every screenwriting rule or just quote unquote storytelling rule is bendable and breakable if it's doing something thematic. 
Hello, listener. So one of the things that we do for our patrons are exclusive Q&A episodes, and we've gotten some really fun questions from people. Questions that include things like, how do we advise people to improve dialogue in their screenplay? A very practical question. Uh, we did a funny section on our favorite advertising campaigns that went a little insane. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Michael's is epic. <laughs> I was proud of that one. Uh, we talked about tools for figuring out theme in your screenplay when writing. And a recent one was, with a Marvel-sized budget, what franchise would you want to adapt? Mine was Transformers, which I think would just make a really cool movie franchise. Like, I can't see how that would right. be screwed up at all. It's weird that no one's done that. Yeah, I know. It's so odd. Michael and I had a very strong answer. Oh. Mystery. You won't have to guess what it is <laughs> if you become a patron on Patreon, where you get exclusive access to these Q&A episodes, bonus episodes, like our one on The Rise of Skywalker. So become a patron to help us keep making episodes, get access to some cool things. And once we pass 500 patrons, we're going to be doing a three-part series on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then four patrons, an exclusive episode on The Hobbit movies, which is... I'm both so excited and so, uh... Yeah. It'll be like our prequel episode all over again. It'll be very animated and thoughtful. One hour of four people screaming. (laughs) So thank you to all the patrons that have submitted questions so far and have been helping us make the podcast. We'd love it if you also signed up to help us make the podcast. And we will see you now as we go back to the episode. Back to us. (laughs) Us. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Jurassic Park. Alex, start us off. One of my biggest lessons is the fact that you can, like I said before, there's almost an indie quality to some of the dialogue. And Mm -hmm. there's also the Spielberg quality of letting uh, dialogue play out in long takes or have these really, really well blocked out sequences where there's not a bunch of cuts. There's just kind of like an ongoing stage play happening that allows The camera will move from like one well composition shot to a different one without actually yes. cutting. It's just, they're set up really well mm-hmm. for that. The, the, the Spielberg Warner. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, which allows for uh, a looseness in the dialogue and the actors can have more freedom to play and to kind of mess with each other. You know, I think, you know, Jeff Goldblum is having a blast, you know, in so many of those scenes and it's part of it's because there's an openness to to play and to ad lib and to mm-hmm. change your line a little bit uh, if the moment calls for it. So I just think shout out to that. You know, once again, like why can't we have more blockbusters? And part of it is because everything's like being shot on green screens and everything's so tightly controlled in some ways when everything's like all digital. But mm-hmm. I yeah, I, I would love to see more like big fantasy high concept movies embrace that kind of uh, freedom for the characters, the dialogue, because it gives that lived in three-dimensional feel. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Brian? So it's funny because we were talking about the Jurassic Park sequels and we were talking about Jaws and pre-Jurassic Park being rebooted and Rocky being rebooted, I've seen, I watched all the Jaws movies, all the Jurassic Park movies, all the Rocky movies, like not all together, but like, watch all of them within a week and then a couple years later watch all the Rockies within a week whatever what I've noticed about all three of those franchises is the first movie works so well because the external thing the shark and the dinosaurs and boxing are part of the story but they're there to support 
the theme and the character development and the drama and basically what the story actually is. And I wish, mm-hmm. like, if there's not a graph out there, I would want to see a graph. I am 100% sure as each franchise keeps going, there's less and less drama, character development, et cetera, and more and more boxing and dinosaurs and shark attacks and that kind of thing. And <laughs> and like I rem- remember specifically watching Rocky where I was like, the first Rocky, there's like two fights basically. Yeah. And then like in the second one, there's three. And the third one, and there's like several. And like, and, and I just think that's so interesting to actually follow not just different movies, but an actual franchise and see that the movies get markedly worse. And, you know, all like critics and people will agree with that as they stop focusing on and it's not just character it's not just theme it's everything that we think of that makes a good story they stop focusing on story and start focusing on oh it's a boxing movie oh it's a shark movie oh it's a dinosaur movie let's just do more of that if people like the dinosaurs they must want more dinosaurs and it's like yeah that's not why jurassic park works it's not because there's a lot of dinosaurs it's because of how they're handled and uh, and it just it just really struck me uh, watching, rewatching, also watching Jaws recently and watching Jurassic Park, even watching Creed one and two, which handle the, that balance way better than like Rocky three does, for instance, or Rocky five. So yeah, it just struck me how important it is, whatever your external element is that it's there to support the story. And it's not the thing that is driving, you know, hoping that people are going to see it because there's more of that thing in it. Although again, I think that the Jurassic Park franchise unique among all of the film franchises that are doing this is actually kind of trying to say something about that fact Mm. where like the thing I said earlier, um, we didn't want reality. We wanted more teeth. That's a line straight out of Jurassic World. Dr. Henry Wu says it Mm -hmm. like he's specifically saying it. Like, honestly, when I first saw it, I was like, did he just look into the camera and say that? Like, (laughs) there's something interesting going on or like self-reflexive going on. It doesn't make those movies any better or more enjoyable to watch, but it at least kind of knows what it's doing. It actually maybe makes them less enjoyable to watch. But right. Because it's it almost steals the wonder. It's sort of. Yeah, it's it's occupying a weird space. Yeah, exactly. I think The Lost World still holds a dear place in my heart because I was still young enough to not really know why it wasn't a good movie. Also, again, the park is not open in that movie. Yes. That's like a different mm, site. It's it's a safari consumer thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's got more of a safari feel to it. Um, And yeah, I just, that was a case where for my child brain at that age, at that moment, more dinosaurs was definitely a good thing. I do feel like it's an interesting, yeah. The point that you bring up, Brian kind of also, I think maybe ties in a little bit with, with your lesson to Alex of like when you're doing a sequel there's so many things have been burned through already which kind of ties in so my lesson is also going to be about midpoints and again I think just this is a great example of saving the monster for the middle like I think it's just so so smart but you can only really do that in the first movie Mm. and I think there is this thing where like you know you do want these like longer character building moments and all these things but that kind of only works the first time and like there is this kind of interesting tricky place you're in with a sequel where people kind of already know things but also expect to be surprised they want the same movie again but they also want something completely different and navigating that is so tricky and that's why Jurassic World is you know is what it is but there are moments that are like fun and I give it a little bit of credit because at one point a, a velociraptor is riding on a T-Rex and <laughs> my child brain did want to see that. So I, I do feel like like by 
flagging the meta-ness it almost like gives itself a pass or us a pass or i don't know there's there is something interesting happening with that sequel in particular i think yeah i think that's fair i feel like it's like just like it's like candy that you eat and then you feel sick even, even <laughs> right. well, don't eat the, don't eat the candy, candy like the candy had a reason to exist and like is self-referential but i still feel sick after i ate it mm. <laughs> yeah legit or it's like if that whole movie is like your whole bag of Halloween candy, you can go back and just eat the kind of candy that you like. <laughs> just watch that <laughs> one to shot. eat the whole bag. Yeah. Anyway, withhold your monsters to the middle. Trisha, what's your lesson? Take us home. I think the thing for me is just I want to circle back a little bit to theme because it's what I originally wanted to say about this movie when I wrote this video. And my original title for the video was Theme is in the DNA. We talked recently on a patron-exclusive podcast about theme, and then we also talked about theme a little bit in our Parasite video that just came out and Parasite podcast that just came out. I think the thing Jurassic Park does so brilliantly is it goes back to the premise and extracts the central difficult question that's already embedded in the premise, right? Because when Crichton started, sat down and started writing this entire thing, he he ran into this problem of like, well, this is super, super expensive. Who in the world would bankroll it? Then he hit on this idea of like a billionaire park builder who's there to make a profit off of something that's like scientific and wonderful. And that creates this kind of paradox or this kind of intractable question that then gives birth to this theme of like, yes, these are wonderful and beautiful. Yes, they are also profitable and dangerous. And so all of that was already embedded in the premise here. And I think that a lot of like, when we talk about a high concept movie, we're talking about something that's like, well, if aliens showed up, then what question does that immediately pose? And we talked about this with Arrival too. Like what then is the thing that's the, the central question that's embedded in this like fundamentally like big idea? Then starting there, using all of that to craft your characters. And so- you know, Grant and Hammond, Malcolm, Sattler, everybody is designed. And even people like Gennaro and Muldoon and whatever, all of that is like, and Nedry especially too, right? Who's like strictly there to just like steal it, make his money, whatever. He's very small minded in that way. But all of that comes out of the theme and the theme is already embedded in the premise. And so thinking about that as like a story construction idea, that's something that this does really well. And again, it doesn't have to be, I think when we think about quote unquote theme, we're thinking about like high drama or, or, you know, whatever gritty, like Oscar nominated movie. It doesn't necessarily. Or eighth grade essays if you're <laughs> Game of Thrones writers. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, they, they did writers like me a favor by saying that truly <laughs> because then, yes. then they ended the, the series the way they did. Thank you. You proved my point. Uh, mm hmm but yeah, just thinking about like theme, quote unquote, doesn't have to be something inaccessible or weighty. It could actually be in an action movie. And in fact, sometimes that's where it's most interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Jurassic Park, super, super good. Perfect movie. I think so. What's everyone been watching? Let me know, Brian. So I've been rewatching Firefly. Nice. Uh, which is, yeah, it's just a really fun show. Um and I think the first couple episodes, I was like, uh, is this too campy? Has it not aged well? And then there are just some episodes that are just really well constructed and really smart and 
great like character development and i just just really enjoying rewatching it it's just a shame that i mean first of all there's the issue with like they didn't show the episodes in order uh mm-hmm. which like made sense in 2002 i guess but i think it's a shame wait what Oh, you don't know this? Yeah, basically, no. Fox, I think it was Fox, was like, was like, yeah, we don't know if the first episode's a good first episode, so we're going to show this as the first episode, and then we're going to show this later, and there's not a yep. ton of continuity between the episodes, but there's enough. There's a lot of, like, will-they-won't-they they tension between characters, yeah. which doesn't really make sense if you show it in the wrong order, and they showed the first episode, which introduces all the characters as, like, the second-to-last episode. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, they tried to do, like, the, like, flashback before the finale kind of thing. Um but uh, but the interesting thing is, if you look at that, have you guys ever seen or heard of Steven Spielberg's Taken, the 2002 miniseries? Yes. Dakota Fanning. I yes. think I watched some of it. Okay. Yeah. Clearly <laughs> made an impression. Um, but like that and Firefly both came out in 2002. And I think they're like just a few years before their time. Even mm. the rest of development was around the same time where it was like you didn't have Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men until a few years later when it was like, oh, this is what TV is now. Where like in the late 90s, it was like either Law and Order or Friends. Like you didn't have yeah. a lot of like ongoing storytelling. So I think it's it's fun to rewatch Firefly, but it's also frustrating because it's like, oh, if it had come out a few years later, maybe there would have been like better production value and better like care from from the network of like what this thing actually could be rather than being like i guess you can make a space show and we'll just sort of air some of the episodes and air them in a different order and i don't know um but yeah i felt the same space way about western, taken yeah. space western yeah but taken is also really cool and it's just one of those weird things where it's like it just came out in a time where people were like ew miniseries no one wants to see a miniseries and now it's like yeah. everything is a miniseries totally interesting yeah alex so I actually watched Taxi Driver for the first time last week. Oh, I had never awesome. seen it. It was a it was a missing frame, you might say. So I'm, I, oh. I went on the Missing Frames podcast from our friend Sean, oh, uh, which should be premiering soon. So I think by the time this podcast wow. is out, that will be live. So uh, I will I will actually withhold my thoughts about it. You can listen to that podcast, Missing Frames, and we talk about Scorsese. I have a lot of mixed feelings about him. Uh, we talk about just. Uh, the seeing taxi driver after knowing so many like cultural references to it like what it was like to actually see the movie for the first time so i think it's a good episode Mm -hmm. i think it's a fun fun chat we had nice i didn't know you did that i'm so excited to listen to it now yeah me too cool trisha yeah so i recently watched the crimson kimono which is a 1959 um, film noir kind of detective story uh, written and directed by Samuel Fuller and starring Victoria Shaw, Glenn Corbett, and James Shigeta, um, who you probably know as Mr. Takagi from Die Hard. But it's like super, super young James Shigeta. And what are you going to say, Brian? Mr. Takagi <laughs> won't be joining us for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. But so... By the way, super young James Shigeta is smoking hot, as is Glenn Corbett in this movie, as is Victoria Shaw. And it is this, like, it's a fascinating, so it's um, Glenn Corbett and James Shigeta play, like, partners. They're detectives, and they're trying to solve a murder. And they both fall in love with Victoria Shaw, so it turns into this, like, love triangle. But there's this really interesting interracial component to it, and it all sort of takes place in Little Tokyo in L.A. in 1959. And so it's it's actually kind of a 
sophisticated conversation about race and, and like what it meant to be Japanese American at the time. Um, it's kind of melodramatic and as a mystery, I'm not sure how well it holds up, but it's still like at the time was critically really well received and is, is really interesting to watch now. And, and the performances are great. And like, um, anyway, I really, really liked it. I just was super into the love story and sort of like the cultural thing that was happening, um, in this movie. It's awesome. Check it out. Very cool. That sounds really interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll check that out. Yeah, you should. Yeah. He won't. <laughs> Speaking of a Ron Howard voice. <laughs> right. Speaking of he a did. development. <laughs> well, so a couple of weeks ago, when the world was a different place, uh, Alex and I went to a live reading of the screenplay for Eternal Sunshine. It was this film independent event that Alex told me about, and he invited me to come along. I'm so jealous. Mm. It was super cool. I was a little worried just because... You know, so they were doing kind of a hybrid version of the screenplay mm. where they adjusted some of it to be to fit more like the movie, but it was also the actual screenplay, which if anyone has read is pretty different from the movie. Very. And like there are characters in it that aren't even in the final film and all these things. The cast was amazing. Uh, Tessa Thompson, Martin Starr, Kelly Marie Tran, Nick Kroll, Kirstie Clemens, J.D. Plass, and others. So Tessa Thompson played Clementine, Amazing. Kate Winslet role. Martin Starr played Joel, mm. the Jim Carrey role. And Kelly Marie Tran as Mary, the Kirsten Dunst role. Nice. Was so, she was so wow. hilarious. And Tessa Thompson was so good as Clementine. Like, it, it feels like you're messing with, you know, like you're, like Eternal Sunshine is holy, right? So like to mess with it, it all feels weird. Sure. But seeing Tessa Thompson in that role was like really good, like really fitting. And like if they remade it with her, it actually felt like, okay, this would actually fit really, really well. That's so cool. So yeah, it was really, it was just fun to see a different cast, a different interpretation of it. Uh, the reading was directed by Brett Haley, I forgot to say. But also really interesting to hear the original screenplay read out loud and kind of track live oh, this scene, I see they took these lines and put it here, or they edited this scene that was supposed to come at this point, and they repurposed it for this point because it was shot in the same place. And so it was also just the the main track of my brain was watching what was happening, and then there was this other track that was kind of piecing together the editing process and how fascinating uh, the whole thing was and just reminded me of how perfect a movie it was. It was really, And really it was fun. still an emotional experience just watching a reading, and they and they played certain music cues at certain times, and it was just like, ugh. Right. Did they play the John Bryan? Like, they did. Yep. Oh, so good. Uh. Yep. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Amazing. But we didn't get to talk about how Jurassic Park was the first widescreen VHS that I ever owned or lots of other little fun trivia things Many like that. Many other things about Jurassic Park. My parents, when they got the VHS, didn't tell me they'd gotten the VHS. And I came home from school that day and they were like, sit down on the <gasps> couch. And then they pressed play and it, they, they even queued it up to be like, oh like before the titles like like you know the the sound and those opening titles uh. and i think i like i think i screamed i think i was just like <laughs> <laughs> it was the most amazing like vhs reveal of my life good That's for your amazing. parents i really really respect them my dad got it my dad got jurassic park so he like <laughs> did the whole presentation right and if we talked about in the video it took a long time for it to come out on vhs it, That's why it was like it was a big deal ungodly amount of time yeah yeah back in the 90s it took, it took uh, like a year for something to come out uh on home video 
It's insane. Well, so what you do is you just listen to the soundtrack over and over and over yeah, again right. and start to notice all of the crazy things John Williams is doing, like chains clinking and like all this amazing weird percussion. And... Okay. <laughs> it's a part of us. It's deeply a part when of I us. When I got the widescreen VHS, I, I went and returned it because I was like, why are these black bars here? Good for you. It's, it's one of the most shameful. Wow. <laughs> I deeply, you really, deeply regret wow. it. Anyway, this has been our conversation about Jurassic Park. We're going to stop because we could talk for forever. Thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you to all the patrons on Patreon for supporting the show and making it possible. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.